Amen. Amen. Would you guys just give God a praise as you sit down? Yeah. To celebrate a God who is able to do all of the things that we just sang about, who is the center of all of these things. Um, and to then come to his word today uh, with our hearts and eyes prepared, expectant as we spoke in our liturgy. How are you guys doing today? Doing all right? All right. I don't know. I think we mo- kids are in for the most part. And I just kind of wanted to, am I right about that? I'm not missing any one group. All right. So just so you know, as a speaker, it doesn't bother me that there's sounds and, and little, you know, wiggles and stuff like that. So be at ease. Uh, be ready to engage the scriptures. I know there's going to be little interruptions and stuff like that, um, uh, but, but no one's judging you. You're good. All right. Just sit easy, rest well, um, and then let's come at this together. I just want to um, keep those. I, I love that last song partly because it just comes from all these different perspectives and recalls the history of God's people and allows us um, then to ask God to be that same person for us today because we know that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, And what we're going to see today is that even in the scriptures, Paul is continually doing this. This is like a tradition, a liturgical tradition that we get to walk in today. Um, And it's a a beautiful way um, for us to practice our faith is to recall and to bring those things back into mind. I'm like right on the edge of like clipping, aren't I? Right on the edge. Can we turn me down just a slight bit, I think? We'll see. We'll see what happens. Otherwise, I'm going to dance in front of that speaker and make it happen. Um, okay, so, so last week we started um, a series on the book of Ephesians, or a letter to the church at Ephesus. Um, and some of you, it's interesting because there's been, I've got a lot of text messages just about um, some of the things that we talked about last week. And um, I want to encourage you all, read the book of, of Ephesians, read that letter over and over or during this summer, um, or slow, whatever pace that you want to do, but put it together at times and just read it in one stint. But also, we went through Acts chapter 19 and 20, which talks about the beginning of this church. And what we learned inside of that is that there is a life force to every city. There is a life force to our city. There's a life force to every city that you've ever been from. And some of them have a bigger gravitational force than others, Right? So you get an influence from places like L.A., from places like New York, from places like San Francisco, Tokyo, London, Paris, right? We hear about what happens in those cities when, they, um, when something uh, that they're doing in the culture shifts. And what we realize is that Ephesus is one of those cities. Not only is it highly influential, but it is a destination city where people from the Greek and Roman world always come to to check out. And so we read about this, um, this church being birthed in the middle of a cultural atmosphere and a life force of a city. And so when we read this book, we can't try to read it outside of that context, outside of what was happening in that situation. And so what we found out is that there are kind of three different angles that I wanted to present to you so that we frame this letter when we read it. First is the religious cultic practices based on the monuments, and we used um, the statues and monuments to talk about those things. The powerful women of the city that when people would come in, they're like, who are these people? Where did these ladies come from? And they even attached it to a mythology of, well, they must have been started by the Amazon women right? That must be what happened here. Uh, And to some extent, there was an embracing of that idea. And then the economy of this city, it was so influential as a vacation point, as all of these different things. And um, they would constantly then cultivate inside of the people this high level of allegiance to not just the city, but the goddess who provided for them this high level of, of, of affluence. And so they were 
incredibly strong in their citizenship. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. They would chant to this goddess. They were very um, highly invested in their own city. And so today what I want to do is turn from that background to the actual letter of Ephesus today. We're going to look at this first part, just verses. Well, we read one and two, go from three to 14. And what I want you to see is inside of this very beginning of this is a unique kind of introduction that Paul does inside of this letter. Because you look at it and you're like, well, it's, is it a table of contents? Like when you open up a book and you have all of those chapters laid out for you, subject matter laid out for you, and the answer to that kind of is yes. Well, hold on, it's kind of like poetic. Even in the Greek as you read it, there's this sense of poetry. So is it a poem? It kind of is. Well, maybe it's a song because it, it almost has this flowiness. It is actually, a, is it a blessing? Well, it's like all of these things wrapped into one little thing. But I want you to know that it is both poetic and it's like a sampler. In our preaching collective, Pastor Kim was reminding me, he's like, that kind of sounds like at a restaurant. Well, in fact, we went for Mother's Day a few weeks ago to a small restaurant. It's a Turkish restaurant um, called the Bosphorus Cafe. I think I actually have a picture. Uh, I just took a snatch off their website. Got to give a little shout out to the Bosphorus Cafe. We got that action up there? Back for, what? Why not? All right, never mind. Back off. You are going to see some really delicious Turkish food right now and then want to go there right after this service. So, so check this out. Even though um, this, 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 uh, we walk in and it was so packed, they found a table for us and the owner, um, he was, for whatever reason, was enamored with the size of our family and he gave us a lot of attention. He kept coming back to our table, striking conversations up. And one of the things he does as we're looking at the menu, he's like, put the menu down. I know what you want. And you're like, uh, okay. We're going to get the samplers. All right, so, so sample. Okay, well, uh, let's do this. He's saying, he brings it out. He gets it all set up. You're going to want to try everything we have here. And the first round comes out. And we've got a plate with bread, right? We've got, we've got the bread baskets laying around. But then we got hummus. We got tabbouleh. We got grape leaves. We got baba ganoush. We got eggplant salsa. Every piece of uh, the, the sampler set that you could get. And we start eating this. And it's so amazing. But that was just round one. Round two comes out the meats, all right? So what we have is kofti, we got gyro, we got lamb, beef, chicken kebabs, all of it. And so you're eating this whole thing and you're kind of getting this taste of what it's like to be from this guy's Turkish heritage. It was a lot of food, uh, but not a lot of any one individual item. Why? Because it's a sampler. The job there is for you to try everything, but not know the entirety of what it's going to get into. And so he gives a little taste of all of the different sauces, all of the different meats, and it was delicious. And this is what Paul is going to do in this opening. He's going to put in front of you a couple of ideas, five or so, maybe six, depending on how you want to read that. And he's just going to start to begin. This is what, we're going to talk about this. And in poetic form, he says, we're going to give you a little bit about this. And then we're going to jump over. I want you to taste this. But we're, we're not going to get into it yet. That's for, the, that's for the rest of this letter. We're going to go back and do everything in detail. But at this front end, I just want you to get a little taste. And so we today are going to get just a taste. And he's going to develop these ideas later, just like a table of contents, but written in a kind of poetic flair. And what I want you to do is, it's a little strange. We don't tend to write each other in poems. Um, you know, you don't open up your email with a little bit of a rhyme or, you know, a haiku or something like that. 
But Paul is going to do that, and I want you to know that his method is as intentional as the words he chooses, and the words that he chooses are incredibly, incredibly important. In our culture today, you're going to read words here that we use either flippantly or are completely flavored and loaded by things that we have picked up along the way from the Renaissance period, from the Reformation. So think Dante's Inferno, the Divine Comedy, if you've ever read that. Think John Calvin, Martin Luther, all of these people who have provided interpretations of the text. When we read this, it's hard to get our heads out of some of those influences. But guess what? Paul did not know who any of these people were, and he didn't care. He, he was coming from a different kind of uh, influence and a different culture than what we tend to think of. And so these definitions are going to be really hard for you to let go of the way you have previously held on to them and been taught possibly. And then try to then, I'm going to try to convince you why you should immerse yourself inside of the Jewishness of what Paul was doing in the moment that he was writing this. So this is what I mean. We're going to say things like divine blessing. How, how many of you guys have said, bless your heart? If someone from the South says that to you, you need to know. You need to know. They're not blessing your heart. (laughs) They mean something totally different by that, but I'll let you deal with that. Heaven or the heavenlies. Holy, blameless, God's choosing or predestination. Grace, glory, redemption. It's like a Hall of Fame version of every good phrase that you've ever had to say if you grew up inside of a Christian household. And we're going to do some work in our minds to clear out these definitions and assumptions. We have to if we're going to get our heads where he's at. So to do that, I'm going to do just this quick little um, uh, exercise here this morning. Uh, I'm stealing it straight up from the Bible Project and Tim Mackey, but I think you'll, um, you'll kind of get it. It's a, it's a little cheesy, but, but, but stick with me for just a little bit. Um, let's say you're at a coffee shop and then you overhear from the table next to you, someone say something like this. We're going to go in there and we're going to take them all out. And you turn around and you want to see who's saying this, right? And, and if you look at them and then you realize, oh, they've got, they got like clipboards, they're wearing IU polos and one of them has a football under their arm. You're like, oh, oh, they're, they're like talking what? Sports, strategies, football, they want to win the game. They want to go in there and take out the other team. Okay, that's, that's fine. Well, what if you look at them and what you see is they're wearing Carhartts and work boots and you're like, oh, it's hipsters. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. Work boots, hard hats, they got a tool bag. And you're like, oh, it's construction workers, contractors are trying to fit. Maybe some drywall got put in that was bad, and they got to get rid of it and kind of take it out and, and remove it. So that, that changes the context, right, of what's happening, who's saying it. But if you look over there and you see these guys, Al Capone and his friends, tell me we got the picture. Oh, no. What? I found this. Oh, well, now I worked it up and it wasn't as cool. You guys are like that? That's it? If you see these guys saying, we're going to go in there and we're going to take them out, what do you have? A problem, right? You need to run, call the police, do whatever you need to do, get out of this situation because they mean something totally different by those phrases. And so here's, here's my, my exercise point, if you haven't caught it already. Words have a range of meaning, right? There's like a, they call it a semantic domain, like a range of meaning. Words don't mean things 
people mean things by the words they use, all right? Or rather, they don't mean as much alone as they do when you are given a context or uh, a point of origin. So these things give us clues, what they're doing, what they're talking about, the context of what's happening, what's going on, and it surfaces often at times biases of our own. But what Paul does here is when he says these things, we need to understand, well, what, what does he mean? What is, what is, what is Paul wearing at the coffee shop, sandals in a robe, right? In other words, what are his influences? What are the contexts that he's writing these from? And the main influence would be the scriptures, the Old Testament, specifically the first five books that we call the Pentateuch, right? Exodus, or, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, and as uh, uh, this person, as, a, as, as we look at this, when we read um, Acts 19 and 20 like we did last week, what we realize is that his main context was the people of Ephesus, first in the synagogue to the Jewish people, and then he moves on to the Gentiles, and you're going to see why that's really important for the way this book plays out. You're going to see the evidence of it. So when we read, I want to make these connections for you. I'm going to try and connect these points, all right? Everyone good with that? All right, we're going to jump in. Ephesians 1, 1. Open up your Bibles to Ephesians 1, 1. All right, it says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We covered that last week. Then it goes on to say this, praise be to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Okay, so, so right off the bat, we know that there's, it's, a, it's a bit of a praise song, maybe a thanksgiving poem. It's, it's, um, it's trying to give some attribution to God of worthiness, right? And, and, and maybe what you don't know is in this time, Paul is actually quoting or echoing a very common liturgical prayer that was a part of the daily prayers of any Jewish person. So him just using this to us just seems like random kind of, that's churchy words, right? Those are words we say when we go somewhere on Sunday morning. For Paul, he is echoing a very specific prayer that all of them would like All right, they start even maybe saying it while he's reading the letter because they know it internally. They have it memorized. And he's going to end this entire section with the exact same thing and end cap it. So we we know it's one kind of section. There's two things I want you to know that come out just in verse 3. First, it's written in first-person plural language, so it's we's and ours and us's, and you're going to see that happen throughout the rest of this little poem, but at the very end, he's going to strategically change that, and I want you to ask the question, why? The second thing is this. When we think about terms like heavenly realm, what comes to our minds? What have you been conditioned to think? Like a a future place that we go to after maybe, you know, when we die, um, maybe a post-rapture moment if you're really into Kirk Cameron. Maybe this after-death kind of heaven in the clouds with harp holding baby angels. That's a lot of what our ideas of what heaven and the heavenlies come from. It actually mostly comes from the divine comedy and other sources. So Paul means this. This is what he actually means. Go ahead and put that picture up there. Remember we talked about this last week. Specifically the first one. When he says the heavenlies, what he's talking about is that there is a spiritual realm that he is fully aware of. Heaven and earth are not two separate things, but these overlapping ideas, and it's all around him. 
currently, not future. It is currently in his world, and he doesn't separate those things. In fact, most of the world at that time didn't, but just in case they're not catching that, he wants to make sure that they understand that. And then he goes on to say this, and when he says spiritual blessing, what comes to mind for a first century Jewish rabbi who has the entire Old Testament memorized? Anyone else have the entire Old Testament memorized? Since I knew you didn't, and I don't either, I want to bring to mind something that would have been immediate to any Jewish person who is reading this letter from Paul. Genesis 12, 1 through 4 says this. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will what? Bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a what? Blessing. And I will what? Bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all Jews on earth will be blessed. No, all peoples, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so when Paul says this, he is immediately punching that hyperlink and saying, hold on, we've got something else that you need to remember in the midst of this. So here we see Paul, he's reminding his readers of this original blessing through the covenant that he made with Abraham, which will and has always been, don't forget this, for the purpose to reach outside the family of Abraham and bless those other families, those nations, and that this chosen people would then make available chosenness for all people who might come into it. So if you're reading this as a Jewish person, you get this letter from the messenger that Paul has sent, and you begin reading it. Are you like, whoa, I never thought of that, man. Paul, this is crazy. I can't believe you you brought this to my, you're, you're sitting there like, yeah, Paul, we're praying the same prayers as you, man. Of course we know this. What do you, why, uh, yes, amen, yep, okay. Get on with the letter. What are you trying to write for us in the midst of this? Like, we, we get this, and Paul is building up their yes so that he can lead them somewhere. Yeah, 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 Paul, okay, but get on with it. We, we know the plan and the purpose. We've always known that. We sing about it all the time. So Paul keeps going, verse four. He says, for he, what? What's that word? Chose us. Who is the chosen us that he's referring to? Is it you all? I mean, not yet. He's talking about Jewish people. He's talking about the people who came from the family of Abraham, became a nation of Israel that we now call the Jewish people. So so remember that. For he chose us. He's talking to a specific group. For he chose us and him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he, what's that word? How many of y'all love that word? (laughs) Predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. More loaded words. In this context, chosen and predestined, I want you to hear this. It's this phrase, predestined us for adoption. They're always... And I'll, and, I'll, and I'll give you the context of my saying this in just a second. They're always only referring to their connection to the Abrahamic family who was, once again, chosen from among all the other peoples. They, they were picked out. They're, they're, they're talking about this Genesis 12 moment from among all the people predetermined by God before time began. Okay, so 
as a, and I, and I say it sheepishly, I say it as a joke, as somebody who is reformed, who tends to believe in predestination and all these things, I'm telling you that's not what this is saying. This is directly connected to a history of God's family, not a future destination where you say, well, do I go to there or do I go to here? After things are done, he's not thinking here or there. These are things that are combined here right now, heaven and earth colliding, and in the midst of all of these things, as strongly as I believe in God's sovereignty in this moment, this is not Calvinism. You, you and I can talk about that. I tend to still align with that. That's fine. That's not what this is saying. He's looking back. Tim Mackey says it this way. Biblical election refers to God choosing the one out of the many so that through the one, he can restore his blessing back to the many. How beautiful is that and how much does it not matter if you're a Calvinist or an Arminian or if you believe in predestination or not? Let me read it again. The one out of the many so that through the one, he can restore his blessing back to the many. You see, this idea has way more to do with him building this family. God is building a people so that they would become a part of this vocation that was handed to them to be a blessing to all the other people around them. This is way more about that than anything about a future destination of heaven or hell or however you want to define that. And that has become the focus over the last 50 years. I'm saying that's not what Paul's saying. So how can this familial inclusion, if you're a Jewish person, you're like, well, how, how does that even happen? How can it take place? Like, if, if blood determines family, if lineage determines family, if inheritance and being an heir to whatever uh, 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 family structure I came from is the way family is decided and determined, how can this even be possible? The tool for this in their world was this specific allyship that families would come to either through marriage or a pact called a covenant. And we know that word. We've taught on that word. Two parties form this legal and relational agreement that they are not now two separate families, but one family together. And so this family gets bigger and bigger, and Abraham grows it, and they become this people called Israel, and it builds. Eventually, they become a nation that we call Israel. And as they get this, uh, this, uh, this building family bigger and bigger, wider and wider, all of a sudden, they realize that they're not doing so good about this blessing the other nations part in fact sometimes they do bless other people sometimes they do bless other families sometimes they do bless and at other times they curse and at other times they hurt and at other times they enact violence against other peoples inside of the world so this family gets big they call them Israel and they realize wow we're not very good at this and so a son from that lineage a person from that place eventually has to come into play that is so good at this, a perfect one that we call that person a Messiah. We're faithfully waiting. Eventually he's gonna come. At some point, we're gonna get this person that will make things right and bring us back together. So again, if you're reading this as a Jewish person, you're also thinking like, okay, we get it. We're in the family. We already know this. And so, yeah, sometimes we get it wrong. We're all waiting for this Jewish Messiah. And then verse 7 comes in and says this. In him we have redemption. That word redemption is specifically the purchasing of an enslaved person to be freed. We have redemption in him and we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the what? What's that word? Are you paying attention? The mystery 
the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So Paul just said Jesus is the hinge point of all history, the fulfillment of all history, that everything finds its fulfillment and purpose in this one person. It was all leading up to this, and it's all debriefing this moment from here going forth. But did you notice that word mystery? Because again, the Jewish people are like, yeah, yeah, we get, we get this. We're waiting for it. Now, now, if they're getting this letter, they, they already follow Jesus, and they, they've agreed to that. But, but what's this mystery? What's... If that's something that was previously concealed, now it's, it's made known, what more could we possibly have to understand? And so think of like, uh, I don't know if you're into CSI, I'm not like a CSI person, no matter which city it happens to take place in, uh, but go old school, go Sherlock Holmes with me, right? Sir Conan Doyle, and uh, writing these um, novels wherein what he has to do is to allow the clues to build towards something, to point you so that when you get to the end, you realize all at once the brilliance of this author that was so masterfully and patiently able to drop clues here and drop clues here and maintain consistency throughout the entire novel so that by the time you get here, you look back and you're like, oh, Oh, you were telling us the whole time. The entire time it was there, and I just wasn't, I didn't have the fullness to understand, but you told me here and here and here, and if I had been able to put all of those things together, I would have been able to figure it out, and now I realize that you let it develop so that we could get this full effect for our purposes, so that we could have a full understanding of, that, of the fact that we needed Jesus. And you get this final puzzle piece, and together, all of a sudden, you look back and you think the truth was there all the time. And so now the Jewish people are starting to think, like, okay, like, we, we were with you up until now, but what do you mean? There's, like, another piece to this puzzle. So let's finish up in verse 12. It says, remember, in him we were chosen in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ. Who's the we we're talking about still? Jews from a synagogue in Ephesus. That we might be for the praise of his glory and, what's that word? You. He shifted from first person outward. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who were God's possession to the praise of his glory. So this is where the address shifts from us and we to you He's, he's transferring something. It moves from this first person portal to second person portal. Now, I warned you about this earlier. I said, it's coming. Be ready. Try to figure out what are they saying? Why is this a big deal? What is the reason that he does this? Well, who did Paul go to first in the city? He went to the Jews. He went to the synagogue. In fact, this is what it says. Acts 19, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. 
Paul knows that there is a tension in the room. Paul understands that there are two different groups that he's speaking to, and it's kind of like he did the side. Hey, you know, we've done this. You know how we've been in the family, and we're always supposed to do this blessing. Yeah, yeah, Paul, we're, we're supposed to be blessed to be a blessing. Gotcha, whatever it's supposed to be. And then all of a sudden, he picks out the other group inside of this, making sure these side, they're fully aware of what's going on, rooted in their covenant, rooted in their calling. Amen. Yes, Paul, yeah, we get it, we get it. So why aren't you doing it? And he addresses the other person in the room. There was this cultural collision between the Jewish and the Gentile people. And this is one of the main, if not arguably the main reason, Paul writes this entire book, this entire letter. He is bringing these two households together. And so the Gentiles who became followers of Christ are the fruit of this blessing despite the efforts of the people on the other side. They have been, don't forget, holy and chosen and redeemed and adopted and a part of this family. And for the Jews who are in this original lineage of Abraham, those people, yeah, yeah, you're chosen, but don't forget, you weren't there just for yourself. You were there so that you could include the people who were over here. Stop excluding them. Bring them into the fold. Well, well, yeah, but they weren't like born and raised with us. Look, this was always the plan. This was always the covenant. You said yes and amen to it. Well, but I'm, I'm not, they're like, remember, like, how can we, how can we be sure? Oh, well, that's right. Do you remember when I was there and none of you knew about the Holy Spirit? You hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit came down and was upon all of you. So that's your seal. That's your mark. That's what he means when he says this phrase, that you were marked and sealed by the Spirit. Look, you, you can't argue with that. It's, it's not just that. You've been sealed in this promise. I'm not just in the family. I have an inheritance, and that inheritance cannot be taken away. And I love how these letters were written to both of them at the same time and meant to be read out loud at the same time. So if you're over here, you're like, yeah, yeah, cool. See, I told you guys we're the chosen ones. Like, you're just... Be glad you're in the room. We're good. And then all of a sudden he's like, but you. And they're over here like, oh yeah, here it comes, man. Here it comes. You were also chosen, brought into this family. You're equal. Whatever divide you have amongst yourselves is not supposed to be there. Break it down. Tear it up. And these guys are looking at them like, hey, I didn't write the letter. Paul wrote the letter. That's on y'all. You figure this out, right? So, so we have this brilliant literary piece, this opening. It gives us this table of contents. He's going to go back through all of these subjects in length over the next few weeks as we cover it. And as we read this letter, literarily, Paul is brilliantly tearing down barriers. He's creating ways where they weren't there. He's revealing this mystery so that they understand what's going on. He's affirming the history of the Jewish people while saying, look, this covenant was meant to be extended to all people. This is what it looks like that all people would be blessed. Can you be a blessed family together? And so heaven and earth are colliding. People and people are colliding. And even in this one, just these few verses, the spirit and the human and what our identity means in Christ is colliding. And so I want you to see all of this is being accomplished in a short little poetic form. And he's doing so, and in doing so, giving them a table of contents so that they can orient themselves around it, so that they know the subjects he's going to address as he challenges them. But check this out. Pastorally, I also want you to see something that's taking place in here. I want you to recognize that there were multiple identity statements that were being mentioned inside of this. 
The reason I want you to know that there are lots of identity statements in the midst of this is because I know that there are lots of lies that the world wants you to embrace about yourself, that we even embrace on our own terms. We tend to think low of ourselves at times, and we'll believe lies about ourselves. and then the enemy wants to come in and compound those things, and this is what Paul is building in as he's baked in all of these things, and I've tried to get you to see it in that context, you also are the fruit of the inclusive nature of the way in which he said, we're tearing down strongholds. We're breaking down these ethnic barriers. We're building out this so the Gentiles are included. And all of a sudden, we get to say now, not just you all were chosen and holy and blameless and found and predestined and adopted and forgiven and redeemed and sealed. So am I. So are you. And, and, and as we're doing this, against all the conventionality of wisdom, Christ says, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to fight for this to be true. I want you to speak truth into your own heart, mind, and soul. So today, when you walked in, you should have been given a piece of paper with a list of every single identity statement that's put in here, but I'm also going to throw in one little extra credit for you. Just hold on to that. So it says this, I am blessed, chosen, holy, and blameless. I am predestined, adopted, redeemed, and forgiven. I'm lavished with grace and saved. I'm marked and sealed by the Spirit as God's heir. And check out that last one, a masterpiece created for good works. Look, look, this is what I want you to do. I want you to memorize this. I want you to take this paper with you, read it in the morning until you don't have to read it anymore, and it's just a part of who you are. In fact, I'm borrowing this from something that we did to a high school ministry over a camp years and years and years and years ago. And every student in the camp was meant to, to read this. We had them, we tested them, like, all right, can you read it? All right, put the paper down. Tell me, I'm, I'm blessed, chosen, holy, blameless, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, lavished with grace, and saved, a mark with seal with the Holy Spirit. I am God's heir and a masterpiece created for good work. Great, next kid. I am blessed, chosen, holy, blameless. And they would like come up with songs in different ways to remember it. And I want you to hear this crazy piece. That this was not planned. This could only be, I'll call it sovereignty from God. You can call it whatever you want. Um, one of the young ladies recently uh, who I knew fell away from Jesus, got, was, ended up on the streets, um, and was very addicted to multiple different drugs. Um, so, so this is a young, young lady who was a high schooler at the time that I was a youth pastor in this area, um, and recently became very public about having gone to rehab and getting cleaned up and doing... Um, uh, just getting their life back together. Kid you not, posted on their Facebook timeline this thing that some youth pastor in camp made us memorize years and years ago. I'm blessed, chosen, holy. I'm not those things I thought I was. I'm, I'm not worthless. I'm not living on the streets. I'm holy and blameless. I'm predestined. I'm adopted. I'm redeemed. I'm forgiven. I'm not an addict. I'm lavished with grace and saved. I'm not enslaved to my sin. I'm marked and sealed by the Spirit as God's heir. And listen to this last one because it comes from chapter 2, verse 10. We borrowed it. This is where Paul brings it all to its conclusion. We'll, we'll teach on it in more depth. For we are God's masterpiece. That word is poem. Poema. It's where we get our word poem from. You are a masterpiece, a workmanship. You are an art created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance 
for us to do. You see how he brings it all together. And so I want to sow these words of identity, these blessings into your life, so that in hopes one day they might create a return, that you would know who you are in Christ, not what the enemy tells you, not what the world tells you, but what the scriptures tell you, that you have been grafted into something that you cannot be removed from, that you have been brought into a family that is fully, well, when the enemy wants to come in and start saying things, well, I don't know, am am I really in the family? Oh, yeah, I, I said you're adopted. When the enemy says, no, I own you, you're a slave to sin, and God says, no, no, I rememberized it, I'm forgiven and redeemed, and now I'm his, I am his possession, I don't belong to sin anymore. Well, how do I know? Because I'm sealed and marked by the Spirit, and I'm an heir to the throne of God. And so here is my challenge to you, memorize on the paper, if you didn't get one, grab one on the way out there at the little connecting place center, I want you to memorize these things, let them internalize, and then as we continue to read the scriptures, understand this is the theme, one of the major, major themes, if not the most major of all themes, that he is writing this letter. He is trying to break down these barriers and build into this new family, this new kingdom of God's people. Amen? Let me pray over you. So Father, thank you. Um, We want to We want to live into the fact of Christ's work that we have become part of a chosen family, that we have become heirs and inheritance, that we're not slaves to sin, that we have been given an identity and a vocation, a job to do, that we would have the responsibility to bring as many people into the family, blessing all people so that our privileged identity can be their privilege and their identity, God. So today, where there are people who don't hear it, God, would you let them know that they are blessed? Brought right into that family of Abraham. Brought right into that family that became tribes and clans and then eventually a full-on nation. And over and over, the enemy tried to stamp them out of history, but they don't get stamped out of history. They uniquely maintain their identity and they uniquely maintain their vocation. God, could we carry that baton today? Let us know that we've been brought into this predestined, pre-thought of this plan in all wisdom. You created it, you adopted, you redeemed, you forgave, you lavished us with grace. We are now saved. So Holy Spirit, fan into us a flame and a passion of faith that is unmatched by anything that we see around us in our culture that is unmatched by anything we have done, by any season we have lived before, there is still greater things to come through you. Write this on the tablet of our heart, Lord. And we ask for this right now in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen, amen.